One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB+, on the app, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome. I'll bring you news about the rest of the show a little later. But for now, right now, we're going over to the COVID inquiry where former health secretary Matt Hancock has just taken the stand. For the purposes of, of, uh, for those who may be listening to Mr Hancock's evidence, uh, I'm going to make clear that your appearance today is obviously concerned with the discharge of your functions as the Minister for the Cabinet Office and as Secretary of State in the Department of Health and Social Care pre-pandemic. Yes. We are concerned today only with the issues of emergency planning and preparedness. And so may I make clear that I will not be asking you questions about the detail of non-pharmaceutical interventions, lockdowns, the government's response or the test and trace or procurement or PPE issues which arose after the pandemic struck. May I then they will come in later modules, just so they, you understand. They will all be in later modules, particularly module two in the, in the autumn, for which uh, Mr Hancock has already provided a, a draft statement. EPRR pandemic planning. The functions of the Secretary of State, Mr Hancock, in relation to pandemic planning are wide-ranging and complex, are they not? There is quite a lot to be concerned with in this field. Um, Yes, and that is in addition to the very broad responsibilities overall as Secretary of State. You are responsible or were responsible in broad terms for health and social care, and that includes, therefore, health protection, health improvement, the health care systems, the social care systems, although that's largely in the hands of local authorities, and and most importantly, perhaps the NHS. So it's a very wide brief indeed. I wouldn't say most importantly the NHS. I'd say that there are many, many areas of importance, and actually one of the challenges of the job is to try to put your attention to the most important areas, because it is so broad. Is a vital function of the Secretary of State to deal with health emergencies? Absolutely. And going into the job, I had some experience at a more junior level of dealing with uh, crises and emergencies. And so I took my responsibilities as the, um, a, a, as the principal responder to a pandemic very seriously. Does dealing with health emergencies include dealing with infectious diseases? Yes, of course. And being ready to deal with them? being ready to deal with the risk of infectious diseases. Absolutely. So, 
when concerned in the field of emergency preparedness, resilience, civil contingencies, where there is a health emergency, it is the Department of Health and Social Care that is the lead government department. In effect, it is the department in the driving seat. Yes, and as Secretary of State, uh, I felt keenly the responsibility as essentially the lead responder in the first instance to those sorts of health emergencies. And it was a, um, it was a part of my day-to-day -day work because these emergencies happen from time to time. Were, when you were Secretary of State, risks prioritised in any way? Was there a grading system to prioritise those most important and, and serious risks from those that were less so? Yes, of course. That's absolutely vital. And one of the challenges in a system as big as the health system is making sure the decisions are taken at the right level. Because if you escalated everything to the Secretary of State, they, whoever they are, they would be completely overwhelmed. Um, yet, it's vital to escalate the things that need to be seen by the Secretary of State to, the, uh, uh, to their desk. Was influenza pandemic prioritised as a Tier 1 risk? Yes, it was. Uh, on, I recall that on my first day, I was given a, a briefing document, um, about as big as this one, and one of the elements of it was making clear my responsibility as, a, as the Tier 1 national responder for a, a pandemic flu and for other infectious diseases. I was already aware of this element of the role from my time at the Cabinet Office, but nevertheless it was properly and formally brought to my attention. And on day one, I asked for more information on preparedness because I, having been involved in previous uh, crises, for instance, at the, at the Bank of England in, before I went into politics, um, I knew that when things go wrong, things move quickly and you need to be as well prepared as you can. At the highest level of the department, was there a board known as the departmental board which looked at the highest level on the major risks confronting the department? Yes, and the, the role of the departmental board was to ensure that the department was structuring itself properly to deal with the different challenges that it faced. May we have, please, 23142, which is a copy of your department's then high-level risk register. Uh, well, we'll leave events uh, to uh, trundle on there at the COVID inquiry. Uh, they're rather ponderous, aren't they? Uh, but we will be obviously monitoring that very important inquiry throughout the day. And Peter Carbwell will be keeping us updated with all developments, uh, particularly concerning Matt Hancock. Uh, so good morning and welcome. Uh, I'm Kevin O'Sullivan and I'll be with you all the way to one o'clock. I'm standing in for the great man, Mike Graham, uh, who all being well should be back in the Independent Republic driving seat tomorrow. In the meantime, a busy three hours lie ahead. So fasten your seatbelts and let's get it on. As you are just seeing, I'm a celeb jungle hero. Matt Hancock is taking the stand uh, and has a new starring role this morning as he gives his version of events 
to the COVID inquiry. By all accounts, especially his, Matt thinks he did a great job locking the nation down and landing us with the dire consequences. As the health secretary who steered us through the pandemic, he robbed us of our freedom to save us from the virus. But he believes all those regulations and diktats were necessary to save us. Uh, Given that those dubious lockdowns when our liberty was taken away by one estimate saved just 1,750 lives. Do you agree? 03444991000. Did Matt Hancock do a great job in the COVID crisis? 03444991000. In other news, the Rwanda scheme is making waves again after it was revealed that the cost of sending each migrant to East Africa will be a hefty £169,000. So I guess they're flying first class. Seems like a very high price. But now that we know, isn't it about time we dig deep and just do it? 03444991000. Despite his empty promises, Rishi hasn't stopped the boats. There's still no deterrence to dissuade thousands of illegal foreigners pouring across the channel. So why don't we start flying them out like right now? 03444991000. Meanwhile, the tense situation in Russia is still on a knife edge as the world watches and waits. Putin remains in power, but the more tough-talking speeches he makes, the weaker he looks. His end game has undoubtedly begun, but how long will it take and what happens when he goes? Also, why the hell is a soap company encouraging migrants to illegally cross the channel and droning on about all refugees welcome, while one of its PR managers issues statements attacking the utterly shameful politicians and right-wing media for their approach to the crisis. What has any of this got to do with cosmetics giant Lush? Aren't you sick of this kind of ludicrous corporate virtue signalling? 03444991000. Talking of which, why on earth is the government proposing to shell out, you you won't believe this, £2,000 per person for life coaches to help them cope with the anxiety caused by social media and the physical strain of working from home? Is that what Sunak and the gang should be spending taxpayers' money on? Spending our money on? Life coaches for people who are having trouble working from home? I can't believe this. 03444991000. Plus, is Meghan Markle, as one Hollywood mogul suggested, talentless? And if so, is that the reason her showbiz fortunes are plummeting? I'll ask TV critic Ali Ross if wannabe stars can ever succeed simply by being famous for being famous. I'll also get Ali's take uh, on the new tycoon star of Dragon's Den, former footballer Gary Neville, eh? Is that a clear case of jumping the shark or what? Uh, Meanwhile, a new report has concluded that British cricket is rife with elitism, sexism and racism. I'll get the bad news from talk sport reporter Nick Ellaby. All that and so much more. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me right here, right now at the home of free speech and common sense. Talk TV. Let's spend Tuesday morning together. And without further ado, let's go over to my very first guest. He is former MEP Ben Habib, uh, Brexit Ben, as I now call him. Uh, good morning, Ben. Good morning, Kevin. I'm trying to think of a witty riposte to that, but Brexit <laughs> Ben's good. Yes, I'm it, proud of that. it is now your name, and we we did very well with Twitter on that the other day. So uh, that's it. You're stuck with Brexit Ben. Uh, now, uh, talking of which. Uh, uh, 
the it's emerged today that if we ever get round to flying migrants, illegal migrants to Rwanda, it's going to cost £169,000 per person. Uh, I mean, first of all, that seems extremely high. As I just said, they must be flying first class. Uh, but that notwithstanding, do you know what I think? But I don't care. Spend the money. Start sending them. What do you think? Well, I mean, that is a massive cost, by the way. You know, if you multiply that by... I'm trying to do the mental mass, gets all, get all the right zeros in there. But you're up to billions very, very quickly, I think, Kevin, if we're going to use that scheme. But the reality is no deportation scheme is going to work to control the boats coming across the channel. These people are not going to be d deterred from coming across from France because there's a small, very small risk they might be sent to Rwanda. It's just not going to work. And we're going to end up going round and round in ever diminishing circles, trying all sorts of domestic, new domestic legislation, you know, hung on to deportation schemes that simply will not work, will not deter these people from coming across the, uh, from France. It's just not going to happen. And today, I, I don't know if you're going to mention it, but today or yesterday, rather, the Women's and Equalities Committee, chaired by Caroline Noakes, reached the decision that there could be LGBTQ and vulnerable people in amongst these refugees coming from France, and they shouldn't be detained for any longer than they possibly need to, because demonstrably they're not posing a threat to the United Kingdom. So you've got other forces within the UK undermining any kind of domestic policy we might have to deter these people from crossing. It's just not going to work. That's exactly... That's yeah, exactly what it is, Ben. I mean, these are sort of dark forces trying to say, well, if you, if you get the Rwanda scheme, it's just, oh, obviously this comes out of the Home Office. Home Office warning us, £169,000 per migrant. Frankly, why? Uh, but that's the Home Office for you. Also, we're getting uh, stories about, oh, children must not be sent to Rwanda. So there are all these negative stories being projected yeah. onto the Rwanda scheme uh, to make people think we must never do this. Uh, I think we should ignore them. And I think we should start flying migrants to Rwanda. I, I, I mean, I, look, I agree with you. And why it should cost £169,000 to put someone on you know, easy jet from, <laughs> from Stansted to whatever the capital of Rwanda is, Kigali, I think it is, you know, it, it's utterly beyond me. Didn't we pay Rwanda £140 million to set up homes and facilities for the intended uh, deportees? The whole thing, though, I'm afraid, Kevin, is undermined by people in the United Kingdom. The minute someone lands on British soil, they're protected by, by all the laws, backed up by the ECHR, the European Convention of Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights, uh, money given to lawyers to, to, to make their case for them, uh, ministers like Caroline Noakes speaking up for them, undermining the process. There's not a hope in hell of us really getting a grip yeah. of the position by deporting people. Deportation ultimately is a failure. It's not going to work. We were told the Nationality and Borders Bill would sort it out. It didn't. We were told the Rwandan policy would sort it out. It didn't. We were told the Illegal Migration Bill will sort it out. And let me tell you, Kevin, it won't, because there's a big carve out in the Illegal Migration Bill for the Secretary of State to be obliged to take heed of what the European Court of Human Rights says. Hold Nothing thoughts, is going to sort it out.
I There's only one solution, Kevin, yeah. and that's to stop the boats in the channel, send them back to France. We've got to develop yeah. some political flipping blackbone to sort this problem out. Absolutely. I've got to go to break now, but I just want to leave uh, you and uh, the viewers with this thought. If you ever wondered how the government wastes your money, the way they spend like drunken sailors, how on earth has the Home Office come up with the figure of £169,000 to send one person in an aeroplane from Britain to Rwanda. How on earth do they do that? That is a scandal. Uh, stay where you are, Ben, and we'll resume this conversation after these messages. I'm with Ben Habib, former MEP. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. Funny uh, text I've had from uh, Christine. She says uh, the £169,000 per migrant story is easy to break down. £160,000 to the lawyer, 9000 costs on the migrant. That's probably about right. Uh, now, I'm still talking to uh, former MEP Ben Habib. Uh, ben, uh, still with the migrant crisis, this story is extraordinary. The uh, cosmetics giant Lush, which makes makeup and soap, uh, has uh, been encouraged, is encouraging everyone uh, to cross the channel, for migrants to come across the channel. Uh, they're putting up signs saying, wherever you're from, however you got here, all refugees are welcome. Uh, now, Isabel Oakshot, uh, my colleague, international editor of Talk TV, she put on Twitter, why is this huge company that has nothing to do with the migrants crisis encouraging people to get onto dangerous boats and risk their lives coming to this country? Uh, we contacted Lush uh, and a statement, uh, a manager from that company uh, called Andrew Butler said, this is, this is a, 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 an executive from a cosmetics firm. It is utterly shameful how certain politicians and right-wing media seek to scapegoat and blame people who are seeking to escape war and conflict. Rather than focusing on why they are leaving their homes, they instead focus on the way they try to reach a place of safety. The fact is, the only way refugees can claim asylum in the UK is that they first reach these shores and the government has closed off all safe routes, etc., etc. That is a bloke who works for a soap company what on earth is going on well uh, it, it is at one level it's laughable but it's actually quite sinister isn't it kevin that you've got companies promoting illegal activity mm. frankly the directors of lush ought to be arrested and questioned by the police over their inciting behavior inciting the breaking of british law inciting these people to get on these boats and come into our country illegally. That's a criminal activity, that's corporate criminal activity. But I think the reason they're doing it is because of environmental social governance provisions, which are now foisted on all companies in the UK, and it's the corporate equivalent of woke. In order to comply with these new environmental, social and governance requirements, you have to promote social agendas. And Lush has decided that this is a social agenda which they believe in, which they're going to promote in order to tick the box that they're complying with this new uh, this new policy drive towards ESG. I, I hasten to add, it's not a law, by the way, it's not a legal obligation exactly. to abide by ESG, but it's what all corporates are under pressure to do. And you can't raise money 
You can't borrow money. You can't get new investors in your company nowadays unless you comply with these policies. And so it's the insidious takeover of corporate United Kingdom, capitalist United Kingdom, by the left, by the woke brigade, to undermine our country. I mean, it's nothing less than that. It might sound a bit hyper hyperbolic, the way I've just described it, but that's precisely it's, what it is. It, it's ludicrous corporate virtue signalling. And next time I want an update on the, co uh, the migrant crisis, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll nip into boots. I'll go to the soap counter and ask them what's going on. Uh, this is just ridiculous. Uh, and uh, as you say, dangerous. They're encouraging breaking the law. Uh, I mean, can they be, can we, uh, here's, here's one of their products, right? This is, this is how craven all of this is. One of their products is like a, a thing, it's a sort of bubble bath bomb or something. You put it yeah. into the bath and it melts away. Uh, and forms your lovely bath. Well, anyway, at, at the bottom of this, though, Ben, so you have to buy their product, of course. So they're making money out of this. You put it in the bath, and when it melts away, there's a barcode at the bottom, and then you can donate your money to migrants' charities. So yeah. Lush makes some money out of that. It's outrageous. It, it is outrageous. And I think they're really on, uh, you know, thin end of... They're really, you know, uh, what's the expression? They're very close sailing to the wind, you know, sailing very close to the wind. I think there's possibly a criminal investigation to be had there because they are inciting criminal behavior. So I don't know if there's anyone from the Met listening in. They ought to, you know, investigate that, in my opinion. But this is wrong. This has all gone far too wrong. And, you know, we discussed Caroline Noakes earlier. Who would have thought that the Women's Inequalities Committee of Parliament would now get stuck in on Rwanda. Aren't they meant to be promoting minority rights, women's rights? They shouldn't be expanding their remit to use the authorities they have to undermine deportation policies. I mean, the whole thing has just gone crazy. The, this country is imploding. Yeah. We are falling in on ourselves. We've lost any, any desire to promote British national interest for British citizens. We are absolutely enveloped in this nonsense and we're going to drown in it if we're not careful. Uh, ben, uh, I'm really sorry to have to curtail you because it would have been great to talk to you for longer, but we're keeping tabs on the COVID inquiry. Uh, viewers can see Matt Hancock in one of the boxes on the screen there. Uh, so I'm going to have to call it a day there, but as always, excellent to talk to you. We'll do it again soon. Uh, that was uh, Ben Habib, former MEP. What do you think about that? A soap company. A soap company getting involved in the migrants' crisis, attacking the right-wing media and politicians for their outrageous approach to the migrants' crisis. What's it got to do with them? Really, if there's anyone from Lush uh, watching or listening, please give us a call. Please explain yourselves, because I can't work it out. Uh, as you're seeing, Matt Hancock is there, still on the stand at the COVID inquiry. Peter Carwell will be in in just a little while to update us on what's going on there. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. When we reached out to the uh, cosmetics giant uh, Lush, which makes makeup 
and soap to ask them why uh, they were encouraging all refugees, saying all refugees are welcome, get in the boats, come over, why they were encouraging these people to break the law. Uh, they gave us a statement that beggars belief, it beggars belief, talking about the callous government and uh, driving people to make dangerous journeys. Our message is clear wherever you're from, however you got here, all refugees are welcome. We don't care. You're a soap company. Now, uh, that's my view. Uh, let's find out what my next expert thinks. Uh, brand expert and author Jonathan Gabay. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Kevin. Uh, I, 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 I'm gobsmacked by this. Uh, I just cannot work this out. What on earth does this company that makes soap and makeup think it's doing? getting involved in the migrant crisis, issuing us at Talk TV a statement saying, because we said to them, look, you're encouraging people to A, break the law, B, make very dangerous journeys across the channel in which they risk their lives. Why are you doing that? They, this statement, and it's from the Lush Campaigns manager, a guy called Andrew Butler, so it's, it's extraordinary. It is utterly shameful how certain politicians and right-wing media seek to scapegoat and blame people who are seeking to escape war and conflict. That would be the people who are seeking to escape war and conflict from Albania, where there is no war and torture. And on and on it goes, talking about the callous government's legislation driving people to make dangerous journeys. And it ends up, ends up with so our message is clear. Wherever you are from, however you got here, all refugees are welcome. What on earth is a soap company doing behaving like this, Jonathan? Virtual signalling is what they're doing. And um, I'm sure that they, their intentions were good, but you have said it three times now. You've said the word clear. And what this isn't, it's very clear. Uh, it, it's very, very confusing. Um, on, on so many levels. In fact, when your researcher first uh, spoke to me about this, I had to giggle. I'll tell you why, Kevin, I had to giggle. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean... Yeah, yeah, and I had to giggle because it, it's a bit absurd uh, because um, one of the things that they're doing, is, you must understand, we're talking about, about very serious things here, which is about people risking their lives, you know, crossing over, you know, the channel um, on dinghies. And one of the things that they're doing is they've come up with this idea of a bath bomb Yes. where you put this bath bomb in your bath and then inside it there's a QR code mm -hmm. where you um, can't, you're able to donate to a cause. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is that the juxtaposition here of so many different things all not, ma not making any sense, it just makes the whole thing ludicrous because you can't have a thing about pe putting people in water with a bomb when you're talking about a dinghy. Yeah, I hadn't uh, thought of that. You're right. The, the, you see what I mean? The allegories uh, are not then, good, are they? No. Exactly. And then, because everything in a lot of this stuff is to do with semiotics, which, you know, what people um, assign to meanings of signs and symbols and stuff like that. And so, as I said, I'm sure that somewhere they meant well, but it's completely confusing and um, it's just going to uh, make people feel that these people are just talking a lot of hot suds. Yeah, here's an idea, Jonathan. If they want to uh, help migrants and donate, get people to donate to charity, how about we cut out the middleman and that Lush don't sell us their ridiculous soap bombs with a Q code at the bottom and they take all the money they would have made 
selling people the uh, migrant donation soap bombs and just give the money to the charities direct. That way, they wouldn't be making a profit out of this situation, would they? Well, yeah, I get that. And that makes a lot of uh, sense. Um, but I guess, again, I'm, I can't really speak on behalf of them, but I can only, you know, make assumptions. Um, and so I'm going to assume that what they're doing is um, they're trying to just get people involved with the brand by, you know, doing something and feeling that they're being active. But honestly, Kevin, honestly, mate, um, the idea of a bomb in your bath and talking about people crossing water. I'm sorry, the whole thing. <laughs> I, had, I must admit, I hadn't thought about that. I was so furious about this uh, corporate virtue signaling that the details had passed me by. But it's a very good point. My colleague, Isabel Oakshot, who's the international editor here at uh, Talk TV, she tweeted this, a picture of one of Lush's shops with uh, uh, scan to send a welcome message wherever you're from, however you got here, all refugees are welcome. Uh, and that's uh, from Lush. Uh, she says, uh, cosmetics giant Lush Limited welcomes refugees arriving in the UK by inflatable boat and suggests we all do the same. These crossings are dangerous and illegal. No company should be encouraging the criminal gangs involved. Absolutely. And that's the key. That's another uh, very, very important point. Criminal gangs. We don't want to encourage, you know, any more criminals to, to exploit these poor, poor people. Okay, Uh, these are people's lives and we don't want to encourage it. Now, again, I am not speaking on their behalf, but I'm assuming that they meant well, but they just did not see this through. Yeah, it says here uh, the the statement from this man, Butler, continues. We know refugees are forced to leave their homes in extremely challenging circumstances. Uh, The very least we can do is welcome them. Well, he doesn't know that. I mean, we know that uh, Mm. a sizable portion of these migrants that arrive here, they don't leave their homes in challenging circumstances. They leave in order to come to Britain for economic reasons. They want to make some money. Uh, I don't necessarily uh, criticise them for that, except for the fact they're breaking our laws. Everyone wants to improve themselves economically. But this statement, I've got it here, uh, from uh, Lush, it is just full of uh, assumptions, uh, factual inaccuracies and extreme uh, political propaganda, frankly. Mm. Well, uh, in terms of whether all these people are coming here as economic immigrants or, or not, I can't comment because I haven't got the figures in front of me. Uh, so I'm going to make an assumption again mm. that uh, some of these people are coming here for legitimate reasons. Oh, some Don't of them. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's, not, nobody's saying that. I'm just saying yeah. that this guy is saying... Uh, essentially, uh, that that, that uh, every migrant arrive here, arrives here is coming uh, to escape war and torture. Well, as of uh, a few months ago, six out of every ten migrants were from Albania, where there is no war and no torture. And we know that a sizable proportion of these people that come across the channel are not escaping war and torture. So this is a is a disgrace. Mm, mm. It could be worse. It could be that they would have handed everyone a um, a bath bomb as they um, ended <laughs> off shores. Well, we give them a pizza <laughs> when they arrive, so why not a bath bomb? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been bloody ridiculous. Um, but the um, but look again, I'm sure that this company means well, um, but I think that they haven't thought it through correctly, and so what has resulted is Jonathan speaking to Kevin. And uh, and saying stuff that they don't want people to hear. 
Yeah, no, well, I, I, I just think it's uh, corporate virtue signalling, and you're right, I don't think they've thought it through. Uh, that much is clear. Uh, there, I said clear again. Uh, brilliant to talk to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's Jonathan Gabay, brand expert and author. When we come back, Peter Carbwell on the COVID inquiry, Matt Hancock. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Well, welcome back. We're monitoring the COVID inquiry all day. Uh, Peter Carbwell, Talk Radio's political editor, is keeping tabs on it because former Health Secretary Matt Hancock is on the stand and I rather facetiously said don't expect anything exciting. Uh, but in the last half an hour or so, it has got quite interesting. Yeah, I think, I think there have been two significant developments since we last spoke about half an hour ago. Um, the most uh, significant one, I think, is that Matt Hancock looked directly at the bereaved families here in the public gallery and apologised and he said um, he was profoundly sorry for each death that had occurred um, and uh, he said, I can also understand why some of it will be hard to take. Some, For some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. I understand that and I get it, but it is honest and heartfelt. He, he seemed sort of quite emotional, to be honest. He also talked a lot in the last half hour about how the sort of doctrinal failure, the kind of idea of what this should have been and then what it was, and the idea that you can sort of deal with the consequences of a pandemic. He talked about where you bury the dead, do you have enough body bags, that kind of thing, versus actually what should have been done more, which was to stop it spreading. He also talked about, he said, um, in terms of preparedness and the future, he said we've got to be ready to hit a pandemic hard. He said he wasn't happy with how things were at the moment in terms of preparedness. We've got to be able, Matt Hancock said, to take lockdown action if necessary that is wider earlier and more stringent than feels comfortable at the time. The failure to plan for that was a much bigger flaw in the strategy than the fact it was targeted at the wrong disease. Can I ask you this then? What is wrong with this man? Does he not realise the lockdowns were a disaster? Mm. This this narrative that, oh, we'd have all been safe if only we'd locked down two weeks earlier. Mm. It is absolute rubbish. I think you're right, Kevin, and I think that, you know, again, we're talking about the doctrine, we're talking about the idea that Matt Hancock is putting across here and saying that this, this should have happened earlier and that we weren't properly prepared. I think he's right in that we weren't properly prepared. I think that's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But in terms of saying, well, if it happens the next time, we need to go further and faster. Well, I think a lot of people will have a lot of things to say about that that are not agreeing with Matt Hancock. Yeah, well, let me ask the viewers. Uh, let me know what you think about that. Matt Hancock is saying that the problem with the way we dealt with the COVID inquiries is the lockdowns did not happen earlier enough and were were not extensive enough. He wanted them to be even bigger, even more restrictive and probably longer. Shall I just read out that quote again just briefly? This is what Matt Hancock has told has said in terms of a possible future pandemic. God forbid that should happen but if it did We've got to be ready to hit a pandemic hard, said Matt Hancock. We've got to be able to take lockdown action if necessary that is wider earlier and more stringent than feels comfortable at the time. Oh my God, I mean... It just drives me mad. Um, what, uh, everybody, what do you think about that? Give me a call. Uh, Matt Hancock, next time we get a sign of a virus, he wants bigger lockdowns. He wants them earlier. He wants them more extensive. Probably wants to take much, much more of your freedom away. Can you believe that? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. As I always say, Peter, uh, this is what I cannot get through my head. The scientists, the politicians, Matt Hancock's of this world, Right, well, you've had a lockdown. Uh, what was our first lockdown? Quite a long time, yeah. wasn't it? Number of months, yeah. A number of months. Uh, and then you come out of the lockdown 
And then a month later, you go, oh, blimey, we better go back into the lockdown. Mm. It, it, by definition, it means the former lockdown did not work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's as Absolutely. simple as that, isn't and it? And hopefully the inquiry will get into that. Well, call us uh, with your thoughts on that. You can hear what I think. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Thank you very much, Peter. Peter will be back in throughout the show to keep us updated. Uh, it is beginning to happen, much against uh, my predictions. So uh, that was Peter Carbwell, uh, Talk Radio political editor. We're going to go straight to uh, my next guest and uh, he want to talk about the migrant crisis and the cost of sending each migrant uh, incredibly, according to the Home Office, will be £169,000 to East Africa and uh, MPs are saying don't send children migrants to Rwanda as well. Let's talk to immigration lawyer Harjap Singh Bangal. Uh, hello Harjap. Hi Kev. Uh, uh, how do they calculate uh, I mean, I know this This is not your calculation, and I know that getting a one migrant to Rwanda isn't just a case of buying them an air ticket and put them, putting them on EasyJet, but £169,000 per migrant. That seems an extraordinarily high amount. Yeah, I think they've calculated the cost so far, how much have been paid to Rwanda um, for all the acceptance, the documents... Um, the detention time. So, you know, these sort of price, usually it, you, they used to quote Home Office about 14,000, pounds per person they used to deport. Um, but this is seems excessively high. Is it going to be the same thing that we've seen with this government in relation to PPE contracts? And would it surprise us if people, you know, later turned out that, oh, they're all linked and a few mates here and there got backhanders and Companies went bust. It wouldn't surprise me. I think this whole thing needs investigating a little bit further as to why that cost is. But that's definitely not viable for the British taxpayer at all. No, because uh, say, I mean, who knows how many migrants, uh, if any, will ever get to send to Rwanda. But if we start sending hundreds, I mean, pretty soon you're going to be in millions. Uh, and over the course of time, you'll be in billions territory, won't you? Well, um, if we were just to talk about sending that 11,000 back that have already arrived, first of all, the problem is Rwanda's only got 500 places. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and they're going to send us a few in, as part of that deal. So a lot of people don't mention that. So the probably net figure is going to be a bit lower, around about 350, 400. And then even if we did try to send 11,000 back, at the rate of 500 a year, it would take 22 years. And the cost is approximately 1.8 billion. So I, I, I don't really think it's a viable option. Once again, it's something to tell the public, look, we're doing something that is better spent in trying to stop the gangs. You're better off give, telling telling people on the French coast, look, we'll give you 10 grand, just dob your, <laughs> just dob your local people smuggler in. <laughs> And, and they'll do it and we'll get more results. Uh, I, I mean, you, you know, it might. But but the scheme itself, uh, as I say, uh, whether or not it ever gets off the ground, uh, if I could use this expression, is up in the air, uh, uh, would be uh, potentially a bit more viable if uh, somehow or other we could uh, conspire not to spend £169,000 on each migrant. I mean, how do you... I mean, as you say, part of it is the money we've already given to uh, Rwanda, I think 140 million quid or something. But how, how do they come up with this massive figure of nearly £170,000? Have you looked into this? Yeah, the cost of detention, so the cost of Home Office staff, 
the cost to do the paperwork, the cost to do security on the airplane, the cost to get a charter flight over there. They're not they're not cheap charter flights, so they, they're not going to go economy class on a normal flight for 400 quid. And yeah. the cost of once in Rwanda, so to transport them, it just seems very excessive. And it does seem, it wouldn't surprise me, like I said, if it turned out that, you know, a lot of money had been gone here, there and filtered out to mates. It's just not viable at all. This is, you know, you don't have to be a mathematician or an economist to work out. I think all three of us sitting, um, you know, on, on the link today can confirm, you know, probably can work out that this is not viable at all. I'd rather that money be spent on the British public or be spent on securing borders and catching the gangs. So actually preventing the boat crossings in the first place. There are also calls today, Harjap, uh, not to send migrant children to Rwanda. So kids who come across the channel uh, are being, uh, or the uh, urges to exonerate them and not send them to Rwanda. Now, of course, you know, even somebody, a hard-hearted person like me would have uh, reservations about sending poor little kids all the way to East Africa. The only problem with this, though, is if we come up with a hard and fast rule, no children ever get sent to Rwanda, then uh, children will be factored in by the people smugglers. You know, bring kids. We'll give you kids. That way you don't go to Rwanda. Yeah, I mean, it is a possibility. However, what we're looking at with relation to the demographics at the moment with the small boat crossings, there is a lot of males, a lot of singles, and people are a bit loath to take their kids on journeys like this. We had a situation in the US, if you remember, that kids were separated from their families, and there was a big scandal in that. They never got to see their families again. Yeah. They never got to see that they'd grown up without having, you know, seen their mum last oh. time. Through bars, yeah, and it was it was terrible. So I think that I think that's sensible. That's reason not allowing uh, separating yeah, kids. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even for the most hard-hearted of people and viewers, they, they're going to agree. Look, they can't separate a kid. Yeah, from even a, even mom. even me. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, Harjap, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That was uh, Harjap Singh Bangal, immigration lawyer. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking, uh, I think we're talking to uh, Isabel Oakshot about the Lush situation, the soap firm that's got its ore into the migrant crisis. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Uh, we have much still to come. In a little while, I'm going to be talking to my friend uh, Ali Ross. He's the TV critic from The Sun. Uh, we're going to be asking, is uh, Meghan Markle talentless, as one Hollywood mogul suggested? And if so, uh, should that affect her showbiz ambitions? Seems to be. Uh, but uh, it's the business of fame for being famous. You know, there's all these people who think you can be famous just for being famous. Uh, but more and more, certainly when we think about Harry and Meghan, uh, there may be a talent issue. Maybe you've got to be able to do something in order to succeed in show business. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, Ali Ross uh, in just a little while. But first, uh, I want to talk about the COVID inquiry. I want to talk about the lush uh, cosmetics company getting involved in the migrants crisis uh, with the international editor of Talk TV, my colleague Isabel Oakshot. Good morning, Isabel. Well, where do we begin? Um, I, I have spent the morning listening to Matt Hancock in front of the COVID inquiry. It's um, an appearance that he's actually been preparing for for a good year or more now and having worked with him for a year on his book I know he was actually quite anxious uh, about this day uh, and will have been spending a lot of time and resources getting his ducks in a row. Um, thus far he's given a typically assured and articulate performance um, but I'm staggered that the key argument that he's making is actually not one that I heard him make in the entire time we worked together. Uh, and it is basically that the fundamental error of the government was in failing to prepare for lockdowns to stop the pandemic taking off in the first place. Uh, now, that is a pretty extraordinary argument to make because everything we have learned since is that lockdowns basically don't work. You know, the experience of other countries is that going harder, look at what China did, doesn't actually save lives. So it is uh, quite stunning to hear him making this argument his central theme today. Absolutely. Has he not spotted the ongoing narrative uh, that uh, perhaps, or many of us feel certainly, lockdowns did not work? I keep saying this perfectly logical observation, if you ask me. Once you have a lockdown, like we did the first time, what was it, two, three months, and then you unlock... And then a month later, you go, oh, my God, we're going to lock down again. It, it automatically reveals that the first lockdown didn't work. Uh, I think Hancock cannot bring himself to admit that the truth, in my view, that the lockdowns were probably the most catastrophic political mistake uh, in modern history. He will never admit that. Never, never, never. What he's doing today is doubling down the precise reverse of admitting what is certainly to me and to many ordinary people, blindingly obvious that lockdowns were a catastrophe of historic proportions. No, he's arguing that actually the disaster of the pandemic could have been avoided or at the very least significantly mitigated if pandemic planning within the Department of Health in the years previous to the pandemic breaking out had focused on how you stop the virus 
taking off in the first place. And we know now we've got the benefit of the experience of countries that tried to turn themselves into hermit kingdoms. You know, New Zealand, Australia uh, went very, very hard, not letting their, their own citizens in and out. We saw what happened in China, appalling human rights abuses in the name of stopping the spread. It didn't work. When you come out of those lockdowns, the thing simply rages forth again. Uh, Baroness Hallett, uh, in charge of the inquiry, uh, she was making comparisons with countries like New Zealand, countries that arguably locked down even harder than we did. Uh, in her list of countries uh, that she wanted to compare with Britain, uh, nowhere did the uh, country of Sweden crop up. Which is very disappointing. And I think if Hancock was asked about Sweden, if he is asked about it, he'll struggle not to refer to it as, quote, bloody Sweden, which is the way he thought of it um, when he was reflecting on how we in the UK had managed the problem. And indeed, at the time during the pandemic, he was very frustrated um, that Sweden had gone a different way, very bravely there. Um, chief medical officer there who had much more responsibility for the overall response than his counterpart, Chris Whitty, here in the UK, uh, decided to take really basically be an outlier um, and let the Swedish people behave responsibly, but largely um, make their own judgments about what they needed to protect themselves from the virus. So Sweden didn't have long repeated lockdowns. And we now know because all the the data is in, uh, that they fared overall better. Uh, what's your feeling, Isabel, about the objectivity of this inquiry? Because uh, the narrative does seem to be oh, oh, the, the, the potential scandal uh, that will arise in terms of the way the government behaved throughout uh, the crisis was that we did not lock down hard enough, we did not lock down early enough. That seems to be the direction of travel here. Uh, no discussion whatsoever of what about if we didn't lock down? Uh, I'm very worried about the bias in this inquiry. So um, I would say one thing, which is that the actual segment, the module of the inquiry looking at lockdown is not the one we're on at the moment. Yeah, sure, so fair enough. Cut the inquiry a bit of slack for not going into too much depth on the consequence of lockdown. And in fact, this morning, Hancock's been reprimanded uh, by the the KC, the lead uh, barrister to the inquiry for repeatedly bringing up lockdowns, clearly something he feels very strongly he wants to make the defence of. Uh, what I am concerned about, well, first of all, I, I mean, I do share your concerns that nobody at the moment is challenging that basic premise, are lockdowns a good thing? Um, but secondly, the politicisation. So this repeated reference to the impact of austerity. I was talking on our colleague Julia Hartley Brewer's show this morning. Yeah, you, uh, you said quite rightly, austerity is a left-wing term. <laughs> it, it is. You know, the rest of us, those of us on the centre-right or the right of centre, however you want to look at it, would frame austerity as something rather different, economic responsibility. So I don't like the way that that term has been wheeled out and it, and it hasn't been challenged. As far as I've seen, uh, nobody on the... Um, on the Inquisition side of things has pointed out that actually we had an awful lot of capacity because we, we requisitioned it from the private sector. We had Nightingale hospitals that we never used. Uh, more capacity wouldn't necessarily have helped um, reduce the dreadful impact of the pandemic. And the other thing that they've gone on and on and on about um, is Brexit and the impact of 
um, planning for a so-called no deal oh. Brexit. Well, I think we all knew anyone who was remotely close to government basically knew that was never going to happen. Of course, it's the job of governments to plan for all eventualities. Um, but it seems to me a complete nonsense uh, to blame what happens in the pandemic on the chaos in the Brexit years. And if it is to blame, uh, then those on the left who keep referring to it should look to themselves because they were the ones that kept frustrating the process. Yeah, well, you know that, Isabel, with the uh, British establishment uh, in terms of problems, all roads always lead to I blame Brexit. Uh, now, you tweeted yesterday, just to move on slightly, uh, about uh, the cosmetics soap company Lush. Uh, I'll read your tweet. Cosmetic giant Lush Limited welcomes refugees arriving in the UK by inflatable boat and suggests we all do the same. These crossings are dangerous and illegal. No company should be encouraging the criminal gangs involved. As a, res a response to your tweet, uh, we received uh, a long statement from someone called Andrew Butler, who's a PR manager at Lush. By the way, Lush makes soap and makeup. Uh, a huge amount of invective against the callous government and utterly shameful that right-wing media seek to scapegoat and blame people who are seeking to escape war and conflict, you know, in places like Albania where there's no war and conflict and on and on it goes. Uh, so our message is clear. Wherever you're from, however you got here, all refugees are welcome. Well, uh, you know, I don't care what your message is. You, you make soap. And I said earlier, uh, Isabel, that that one of their the tranches of this campaign of theirs, this virtue corporate virtue signaling madness, is you can get a thing called a soap bomb, a bubble bath bomb. You put it in mm. your bath. So you buy this from Lush. You put it in your bath, and when it melts away, at the bottom of it, there's a barcode, a Q code thing, and then you can donate to migrants' charities. So I said, how about that Lush don't make any money of from this, don't sell us these soap bombs and all the money that they would have made, all the profits they would have made from these soap bombs, they give directly to the migrants. How about that? Well, that's a great idea, but even better, they should just get back in their box yes. and stop pontificating <laughs> about politics. I mean, I'm sorry, but the response from the head of campaigns at Lush is quite appallingly ignorant. Um, he's bleating on about how awful the government is and how inhumane it all is, and I'm paraphrasing here, yeah. um, and the tragedy of these people coming across. There's no safe routes to the UK. This is utter twaddle. He is completely ill-informed. There are numerous so-called safe routes. The biggest is known as the visa scheme. Yeah. And under that visa scheme, we've let in over a million people. In <laughs> every, the year, every year, every um, year. In addition to the visa scheme, you've got special safe routes for Ukrainians, for Hong Kong Chinese and for some Afghans. So total nonsense. It's very easy, isn't it, just to wheel out, oh, there are no safe routes, did on. So they have to pay thousands of pounds to risk their lives to come over from that war-torn terror zone that is France. I mean, what complete and utter rubbish. Uh, and I would hope 
that somebody in a position of influence like that would have at very least done their research properly uh, before taking up the moral high ground with that completely ridiculously morally superior but fundamentally inaccurate statement. Yeah, corporate virtue signalling of the most egregious kind. By the way, I am a bit gutted because I really like Lush. I <laughs> well, funny there. enough, funny. I was just, just to close off with uh, Isabel. We got, I've got loads and loads of texts because I've been ranting about this all morning angrily, as you'll. Uh, no doubt be unsurprised to hear. And uh, I've got so many texts from people saying, I love Lush, but I'm never going to buy their products again. People are angry about this. You know, it's just a shame, isn't it? Because actually they've done some amazing work and something I think you'll appreciate. They've done great work on ending animal testing on cosmetics. Yeah, they have. You're right. I forgot about that. Something I can fully get behind. I love the rest of their branding. Their packaging is very environmentally friendly. If you care about that kind of thing, there's not lots of horrible plastics it's a it makes great stuff but just stay out of the refugee debate you've got no place in it and no place encouraging illegal dangerous crossings that are bad for those people and very definitely bad for our country excellent uh, isabel great to talk to you as always thank you very much that was isabel oakshot talk tv's international editor when we come back a hollywood mogul has uh, basically said that the problem with Meghan markle and for that matter harry uh, prince harry is they've got no talent they've got nothing to sell uh, so they are classic examples of this new phenomenon basically brought about by reality tv people who are famous for being famous uh, so we're going to talk about that with my friend, uh, the excellent uh, TV critic from The Sun, Ali Ross, after the break. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. Online on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, well, you might have noticed uh, that uh, the show business fortunes of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, have not been doing too well lately. Uh, Spotify, the podcast giant, has cancelled their 20 million deal and uh, they don't want to work with them anymore and we also hear that Netflix are very unhappy with them as well uh, because their ideas are rubbish and uh, they're not very productive and frankly they're not very talented. That seems to be the feeling. And in fact, uh, a, a talent agency, uh, Supremo in Hollywood, a very powerful man called Jeremy Zimmer, uh, was asked about all of this. And uh, he said, uh, well, turns out Meghan Markle was not a great audio talent. That's referring to her podcast series or uh, um, archetypes. Uh, she made 12. They weren't very successful. Turns out Meghan Markle was not a great audio talent or necessarily any kind of talent. Uh, let's talk to uh, my friend, colleague and excellent TV critic of The Sun, Ali Ross. Hello, Ali. Morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm all right. Now, uh, I don't suppose I should really be talking about people with no talent uh, who get on screen because here I am. But uh, that's... <laughs> yeah, we both are, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, but ser- seriously, spiritual home. <laughs> Meghan Markle and H- Harry, uh, it does seem to be the problem that they've got nothing to sell. Uh, that guy Bill Simmons from Spotify said, if they're not moaning on about the royal family, nobody Ooh. cares who, what the, what it is they have to say. And uh, some of their ideas that they pitched to Netflix are hilarious. My favourite, Harry's idea: Emily in Paris, only with a man. <laughs> Uh, but I I, what I I laugh Channel 4 will make that yeah they they will they will but uh, what I think it 
gives rise to is a discussion about the, the whole business of being famous for being famous. That's what I think that Harry and Meghan thought they could achieve. Because of who they are, people will just give them money. And the more famous they get, the more money they will get because they get more famous. And so what I was thinking was for nearly a quarter of a century, we've had the reality TV syndrome, right, mm. where people go on to Big Brother or they go on to Love Island and, or, you know, and then uh, they expect then to be given TV series and to become literally celebrities who are just famous. They've got nothing to offer except their fame. Now, if you think about it, over the years, 25 years, nearly 25 years, Big Brother, I think, started in 2000 or something, uh, it has produced very, very, very few lastingly famous people. So if you've got no talent, if you've got nothing to offer except your fame itself, it won't last long. No, there's one or two exceptions, and I'm not saying talent, but... Alison Hammond is one of the biggest stars in British TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she came via Big Brother two or th three, I think it was actually, along with Kate Lawler, who's uh, also uh, forged a career in radio. Um, but that is the very top end of the market we're yeah, talking. Yeah. And there's so many of these shows. I, I, would you remember, for instance, who even won "I'm a Celebrity" 2022? Uh... No. Jill Scott, but the, that, that's the level of turnover of these things. Um, they, they are here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. And I, I think they genuinely go into it believing they have some talent mm. as well. Just the talent for being them and being adorable and lovable and indispensable. And it's they find out very brutally that they're none of those things. Uh, I remember Kem Setine from a couple of series of Love Island ago. And he was releasing records. He was get, had his own ITV2 show. And I saw him crop up on Soccer Aid the other week. That was the first time in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before you know it, you're, you're hanging around nightclubs doing personal appearances for a grand. Yeah. And probably snogging someone around the back of it and thinking, hey, showbiz, I've arrived. Yeah, but it's comparisons can be made between these people and Meghan and Harry because I think that Meghan in particular with uh, uh, um, uh, um, archetypes, uh, you know, Harry actually hasn't done anything apart from his book, but what I think they thought they could do, it didn't really matter what they said, didn't really matter what was on their podcasts or what was on their television programs because yeah. it's them lovable them and famous yeah, yeah. that famous them it's going to succeed but of course as she found out with archetypes i don't know if you listened to it but it was a cure for insomnia absolute dreary claptrap and despite the fact that it's the very famous duchess of sussex duchess of netflix uh, uh, that she won't be for much longer uh, uh people just didn't want to know uh, yeah, harry's discovering the same thing all those two have to market is their own victimhood, and people tired of that so quickly. Mm. In fact, I think it was one opera documentary, and that was it. People realised, as uh, someone from Spotify said, they are a pair of grifters. Mm. Yeah, I think, I, think the, I, think, I think the term was slightly stronger than that, wasn't it? <laughs> They're a yeah. pair of bleeping victims. Uh, yeah, yeah, much stronger than that. Yeah. It's exactly what they are. And... Uh, 
I, I, I genuinely think they, the pair of them thought they had a job for life, mm. just being themselves. Yeah. And it's been gratifying to see how quickly. I knew Britain would cotton on to them very quickly. Um, but um, America, that's just uh, equally pleasing that they, they seem to have tired of them uh, almost as quickly as well. Exactly, exactly right. Now, quickly, uh, uh, you know that phrase, uh, Ali, we're moving on, um, jumping mm. the shark. Have you heard about Dragon's Den, the new dragon? It's Literally Gary Neville. Five. It's Gary Neville. <laughs> Literally five minutes ago, this news was, was, I, it was dropped on me. Wow. The king of the hypocrites getting on that thing. This is a guy that lectures us about compassion and berates the government for uh, over wages and strikes and he pays his own hotel workers minimum wage nine pound fifty yeah, yeah. yeah um, he, he's identifying as a dragon now isn't he and the, the point is when people go on that say, yeah yeah you're a, a very successful businessman tycoon uh, gary what's your advice well uh, what you got to do is get yourself a job playing for man united they'll give you 300 grand a week then you can build a fortune i mean this show has just jumped the shark with that hasn't it yeah totally he's it takes a while for people to realize this about themselves he's an employee he's not an employer he was lucky very lucky to have a minimal amount of skill of kicking a ball around but was carried by much better players and so he's given him wealth beyond his beyond his natural means and gifts. Uh, so he can consider him very like I thought this show was over about fifteen years yeah. ago. I think the it, fact it's still going is, th- is remarkable. I think it's over now, uh, but uh, I'm sure it'll be something for you to write about when it ha- happens. Uh, I'll see you on Saturday, uh, Ali. Thank you very much for your time. That's Ali Ross, the brilliant Sun TV critic. Read his column on Friday. Uh, when we come back, more about the Hancock inquiry, uh, the COVID inquiry, I should say. Kevin O'Sullivan here. This is live from the Talk Radio studios. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. This is the final hour of Tuesday Drive Time. Oh, no, it's not Drive Time, is it? <laughs> That's my usual show. Uh, it is, of course, the mid-morning spectacular. This is the dependent vassal state of Kevin O'Sullivan. It usually would be the independent Republic of Mike Graham. That will return tomorrow, all being well. Uh, Mike's having a well-deserved break and should be back with you tomorrow. Uh, now, we have one hour still to go in a little while. We'll be talking about that madcap scheme where the government apparently is going to spend £2,000 on life coaches uh, for people suffering from anxiety due to social media and, wait for it, working from home. Well, stop working from home then. Go to the office. Save us all two grand. Absolute craziness. We're talking to Julian Jessup about that. Uh, very importantly, I've got a special section all for you uh, for, te- for for your calls. Uh, we've got lots and lots of calls coming in, uh, and uh, I will take them and we will discuss all the big issues of the day, particularly the COVID inquiry. Uh, and uh, towards the end of the hour, there's a new report out that suggests that cricket... British cricket is uh, rife with elitism, sexism and racism. So we'll be talking to Nick Ellaby, TalkSport reporter, about that. Uh, But uh, lots of your calls are coming in about Matt Hancock at the COVID inquiry, who incredibly, in my mind, has said that the big problem was we didn't lock down early enough and the lockdowns weren't extensive enough. Uh, Many of us believe the lockdowns were the most catastrophic mistake in modern history all over the world. Uh, they didn't seem to work. 
Well, they didn't work. It's easy to say. But Matt Hancock's having none of that. Uh, I'm joined now by uh, Peter Cardwell, Talk Radio's political editor, who's been monitoring this. Uh, it's been a little bit more of an eventful morning than I predicted, Peter. Yes, indeed. I think a number of significant things, including those comments about lockdown that Matt Hancock made, but probably the most significant thing was that the public gallery was had uh, has a number of people in it who have been bereaved, uh, who have uh, lost loved ones during COVID, and indeed there were a couple of people who attempted anyway to um, to confront Matt Hancock beforehand. One widow who had showed two pictures, one of her husband having a photo opportunity uh, when he was alive with Matt Hancock, and afterwards a photo of his coffin, and said this was the the, the this was the photo after uh, the protective ring of steel was around the care homes. He died in a care home, and of course she was um, grieving about that and making the point about that. And with that in mind, actually, Matt Hancock has uh, made quite a quite a strong apology, actually, today. Many people saying it's insincere, some people saying they won't accept it anyway. But let's just have a quick look at what he mm-hmm, told the inquiry. Yeah. And actually, what's important is that he looked at the people in the public gallery as okay. he was doing it. I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had. I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. And I also understand why, for some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. I understand that. I get it. Um, But it is honest and heartfelt. And I'm not very good at talking about my uh, emotions and how I feel. Um, But that is honest and true um, and all I can do is ensure that this inquiry gets to the bottom of it and that for the future we learn the right lessons. Uh, well he was quite good about talking about his emotions when he was in the jungle in I'm a Celeb but uh, that's a different issue but uh, did I deduce that he was apologising for the impact of the lockdowns because uh, if so, why is he calling for no, more no. extensive lockdowns? He, he wasn't. Future? He hasn't really mentioned the impact of the lockdown. Certainly, okay. in, in an apologetic way, he okay. said that they should actually have been further and faster. The other two big things that he's talked about are uh, work by the Pandemic Flu Readiness Board, a sort of committee that he was part of. He said it was paused because of uh, because resources were diverted to prepare for a No Deal Brexit. That's something that's come through this inquiry a number of times. And he said that the overall the plan was just far too focused on deaths on the consequences of the consequences of a disaster as he put it rather than actually stopping the virus spreading mm-hmm. so there were sort of two separate elements there so that's really what's come through he's up there for another 45 minutes or so he'll be up until lunchtime and as, as we've discussed earlier this is specifically about the preparedness aspect of the pandemic it's not about how it was actually executed i've got people here on the switchboard queuing up because we get little notes saying what people want to say they're queuing up to say that the lockdowns were a disastrous mistake, they had a disastrous effect on their lives. However, Matt Hancock seems to me to be in no mood to apologise for the lockdowns. Uh, In fact, he believes they should have been imposed earlier and should have been far more extensive. Uh, That is not going to win him too many friends, is it? It certainly isn't. And uh, yes, that's that's essentially what he said. He said said exactly what you uh, have been suggesting, Kevin. And I think that a lot of people will be very, very annoyed with that. And he's talking about how the lockdown, lockdown actually worked or didn't work at a later session. But in terms of 
uh, what he thinks should happen if something like this, God forbid, should happen again. Well, yes, he's saying that lockdown should be more extensive, more dramatic, more uh, restrictions, essentially. So um, I think that's going to be discussed at some length uh, during the inquiry, but of course on this programme as well. Well, thank God Matt Hancock is nowhere near power at the moment, but you're well connected at Westminster. I mean, is this line of thinking that he's uh, giving us today, is that is that prevalent uh, no, I don't, in I don't, the corridors I, of power? I don't think it is, actually. Good. And I think you've got Rishi Sunak, who was someone who, as Prime Minister, is someone who was sceptical about lockdowns, who realised at least, the, you know, forget about all the other stuff that we've talked about and I'm sure will continue to talk about, should talk about, in terms of the you know mental health impact, the the impact on jobs, on uh, people's uh, well, just the restrictions of their liberty. But specifically, I think Rishi Sunak was talking about the financial aspect of that, and I'm not sure a lockdown the same way it was would be imposed by government. I'm also not sure people would accept it. Absolutely. And uh, so, what Hancock? Last question, really. Hancock, I think, is constructing a kind of defence mechanism mm. here. You know, I didn't really make a, a, a mistake in principle it's just the lockdowns were not extensive enough uh, as we say that, that is going to go down like a cup of cold sick that, that's certainly part of it i think he's saying that look he was told we were very very well prepared for a pandemic we're told we're one of the, we're one of the best countries in the world in terms of pandemic preparedness that did not turn out to be the case quite obviously and i mean in terms of the many many mistakes that were made during the lockdowns and during the covid handling well we're going to see a lot more from matt hancock in a few weeks time aside from this module this bit of the inquiry that is uh, specifically about preparedness extraordinary events though as i said i thought it'd be very dull and uh, dreary today but it hasn't been to be fair no it is interesting uh, yeah. so peter thank you very much that's peter carwell the talk radio political editor who will keep you abreast of the situation at the covid inquiry throughout the day he's done a fine job for us this morning we're going to move uh, right on and we're going to talk about uh, this bizarre scheme the working from home scheme uh, where the government uh, is proposing uh, to spend £2,000 a person on life coaches to help them deal with social media-driven anxiety and the physical strain of working from home. I, I, I just can't even believe this. This is our money, taxpayers' money. Life coaches for people who are suffering from the physical strain of working from home. Well, get off your backsides, go down the station, get on the train and go to the office. How about that? Then you won't be working from home. You won't have to worry about the physical strains. Let's talk to independent economist uh, Julian Jessup. Uh, Julian, well, I made my uh, feelings plain about this. Uh, would you agree? This is mad, isn't it? Well, I think there's a danger of you maybe conflating a, a few things here. There's the general issue of, of, of working from home and there's a specific issue of these schemes for, for life coaches. My, my own view is that working from home is clearly not for everybody. I and mean, clearly, if you're a younger person, for example, you'll be missing out on a lot of sort of networking opportunities and, and, and training if you're, if you're stuck at home. Uh, but for many older workers, people like me, it's actually brilliant. I mean, we have a much more flexible lifestyle. We have alternative choices and it's keeping us in work for longer. So I think um, work for home for some people is the is the right solution. Um, as far as this life coaching scheme is concerned, I mean, my initial reaction is, of course, exactly the same as yours. This sounds like a, another you know taxpayer funded gimmick. Um, there is some evidence, though, from trial schemes that it does actually help and maybe even pay for itself. There are lots of people who probably do need a bit more help considering what their options are, whether that's to return to work in the office or to, to find a job that they can do from home. 
Uh, and there are savings here to be made on benefits and potentially on uh, spending on things like health as well. So I, I probably would give this scheme the balance of the doubt, but I think the evidence burden has to be pretty high to make this worthwhile. Yeah, I'm not going to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, the, these people uh, who are working from home, the physical strain of it, apparently it's all to do with uncomfortable seating, et cetera, et cetera. Well, as I keep saying, well, go to work then. Well, I think there's a bit more to it than that. I mean, there are there are disadvantages for people's health and well-being of, of going to work, like, you know, being stuck on an overcrowded train for an hour and a half, whatever else that might be. Oh, yeah. um, there is some evidence that, you know, people working at home do suffer a bit more from some things. But um, this is, for many people, a, a choice. And you know, by and large, people prefer to work from home because that suits them better. And in particular, also, of course, if it suits the employer, um, there's some evidence in the in the public sector that unions are insisting on working from home, even if that results in a, in a worse service being delivered to the to the general public. So I think it needs to work both for the employer and for the employee. Um, but if that's the case, then, you know, I think fair enough. I don't have a big problem with it. Um, in terms of the public sector there, I mean, you know, as we know, look around Whitehall right now. I mean, what used to be crowded streets and crowded offices are now pretty much empty because uh, most government workers, uh, civil servants in uh, Westminster just don't come into work anymore. And uh, there's no doubt that's resulted in a diminution of services. You know, I mean, uh, OK, the passport office is in Westminster, but, you know, you try and get a passport anytime soon. You try and get your driving licence renewed anytime soon. Uh, the reason that these uh, organisations are beset by inefficiency is no one goes into the office. I mean, why do we indulge this insanity? Well, I'm, I'm sure that is actually part of the, the public sector productivity problem. Um, and here there maybe is an imbalance going the other way. I think if it's a sort of negotiation between employers and employees and they reckon that working from home is best for both sides, then fair enough. But in the public sector, it may well be that, you know, stronger trade unions um, and more sort of a culture amongst senior civil servants to, to bow to whatever uh, the staff want rather than thinking about the needs of the customers, which is which is us. Uh, then I think there might be a bigger problem in the public sector than there is in the in the private sector. I absolutely agree with that. And where do you think we're going with working from home? Uh, because, you know, I mean, I do I do sense, I mean, I only commute from another bit of London, but I do sense the trains are starting to get quite crowded again. Uh, there's a sense that if you don't work for the public sector, people are returning to the offices. Uh, would that concur with your uh, assessment? Yes, yeah, so I have noticed more people returning to the office, um, but also a sort of new model developing, um, a so-called hybrid model where people may be going to the office two or three days a week and, and work the rest of the time from home. And I think that's that's ideal because that maximises the flexibility, but it does make sure that people get that face-to-face -face time, which, as I say, is particularly important, I think, for, for younger people to make sure they get those sort of training and, and networking opportunities. So um, I'm hopeful at the end of the day that the market will work this out. I mean, in, in some cases, the normal nine to five day, um, nine to five day, five days a week model is probably the best. Um, other people like me can do almost all of their work from home. But then there's a big middle ground where I think flexibility is really important and you know, let people work out what's best for them. And in particular, if that allows more um, older people or perhaps disabled people to, to work longer or more than they would otherwise have done, that's really important in helping to fix some of the labour shortages that are holding back the economy, um, damaging the public finances and maybe even contributing to inflation as well. Indeed. Uh, well, carry on working from home, uh, Julian. Uh, very good to talk to you. Thank you. WFH.
man, uh, Julian Jessup, good guy, independent economist. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that? 2,000 quid for life coaches uh, to help people who are suffering from the physical strain of working from home. We'll get on the train, go to the office then. Why do we have to pay 2,000 quid to help these people? And also uh, because they're suffering from uh, anxiety caused by social media. So what? What's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with the government? Unbelievable. Uh, next up, uh, we are going to be taking your calls. Uh, 0344 We've got lots lined up. What do you think about the COVID inquiry? What do you think about Matt Hancock's idea that we should, next time there's a pandemic, God forbid, uh, we should lock down earlier and far more extensively? Uh, or, like me, do you think that we should never lock down ever again? I mean, come on, please. 0344 499 1000. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live from the Talk Radio studios. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.